0: Welcome to the Movie Brats Podcast working title. My name is Carter Franklin. I'm coming to you from beautiful Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Joining me today is Jonathan Winchell in rainy South Carolina. How are you doing, Jonathan?
1: I am not wet. I am inside, so I am not wet right now. It's raining. and It's really bad weather, but I'm good inside.
0: All right. So today, for our first episode, we're going to count down 10 movies that have influenced the way we see movies and have changed the way that uh, I guess we just see the art form of the motion picture. We're just going to go, I do one, Jonathan does one. We're going to comment on each one uh, after we tell it to each other. We do not know what the other person's list is at this point, so we're going to find out just as the audience does.
1: I'm going to start and here. We're <laughs> oh, going to put a preface that these are not the 10 favorite films of ours or what we think are the 10 best films ever it's a list of what we think are 10 films that shaped our film viewing life so we might not even like some of these films or we have conflicted opinions about them yes yes and, right. and uh, do you have yours in any kind of order i, I do mean, not have mine I, in any order i have it kind of in the order i think i saw them in in a rough order i can so, try like, to do that as my... we go on so I Okay, think well, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just that's that's how I have my list.
0: My number 1 is the first is definitely the first one I saw out of all of these. So I'll just start with my number 1, uh The Thin Red Line. I probably saw this for the first time when I was maybe 8 years old cuz my brother rented it on DVD and I just watched it with him cuz he was weird like that and wanted to watch a a weird movie. And that was sort of my baseline for what I thought a good movie was, which is sort of a weird baseline because it's not like a narrative or anything like that. But it just sort of of had me think about movies as more like images, just not really with any sort of context, just to provoke emotional reactions in you as a viewer, which is sort of how I started seeing movies from that point onwards. So sort of a weird movie to establish your taste in movies, but I thought it did a really good job as me as a discerning movie viewer.
1: What do you so, think about at that? eight years old, let me get this straight. At eight years old, you're watching a nearly three hour long, R rated, violent World War II film by Terrence Malick, and you got anything from it at eight years old? Like, I would yes. have been I th- like. <laughs> I uh... thought it
0: looked very nice. At that point, I'd already seen Braveheart. I saw Braveheart probably the first time when I was six. My parents allowed us to see movies that represented his history as long as it was done in a factual manner. So it didn't matter how violent it was. <laughs> History movies are sort of what I grew up on. So Braveheart, I saw that for the first time when I was maybe 6 or 7. And I saw The Thin Red Line. I was thinking of putting Braveheart on here. Because that almost was like my baseline for what a good movie is, was Braveheart. But I'm, I went with The Thin Red Line because I think that stuck with me a little more later in life. <laughs> but yeah, I saw that when I was around 8.
1: I was very self-censoring. I didn't see an R-rated film until I would think I was 12 or 13, and the first one I saw was The Blues Brothers, which really isn't that it's bad. Not it's not even just that just rated R for language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know the first R-rated film I saw in theaters was The 40-Year-Old Virgin, which is, you know, a good first R-rated film for theaters. That's
0: actually going to make uh, an appearance later in this podcast. Huh? <laughs> That's
1: going to make an appearance later in this podcast. Oh, okay. Spoiler alert. Okay, so... <laughs> Should I go with my first one? Yes. Okay, so mine is like the not at all like the thin red line. Mine is uh, Pinocchio, the uh-huh. uh, Disney Pinocchio. classic from 19... 19- <laughs> yeah, I used to call it Pia Pokey. I couldn't pronounce it. I'd say Pia Pokey. Um, but I still have the bed sheet from, from the film, and it's, I mean, I think a lot of people consider it, I do, to be Disney's masterpiece or one of their best films ever. Low-key, uh, Very scary. Film. Yeah, it's, it's a film that, you know, the the whale scene and the scene where the kid turns into a donkey. I mean, it's really kind of disturbing. It is very disturbing. But I, rem- I mean, it was a film, though, that I watched over and over and over. I mean, I haven't seen it in probably 12 years or more. I can't but, remember the
0: last time I saw it. Well,
1: I can't remember any time that I've re-watched an animated disney film besides seeing for the first time moana and tangled you know I, i've kept up with most of the ones but i mean i haven't gone back and watched any of the old disney animated movies since i saw them as a kid but i've watched as the a kid, sword in
0: the stone a few times the sword of the stone is a great movie
1: yeah i like this yeah i watch clips from it on youtube i like the scene where he puts all the stuff from the room into the bag he goes higgity it," and yes. everything shrinks yeah that's a great scene and i like mad Madam mim when she they're turning in all the animals uh-huh. having the duel uh-huh. yeah but anyway uh, i digress the but pinocchio i think is i mean i love the film it's It has a big part of my childhood, and it also is, I think, a truly great film. I I remember John Landis talked about he always hated doing top ten lists or saying what his favorite films are, because he said, I love Pinocchio, I love The Godfather, you know, but what fuck all do they have in common? Nothing, you know, so it... Yeah, so it's okay that um, you know this will be my first pick, and I haven't seen it in many, many years, but it's probably the film I've seen more than any other, even though I haven't seen it in oh, wow. many, many years. Because I, I was one of those you know that kids like to do, they just watch it over and over and over. Oh, yeah. That was the, for me. That was at least one of them when I was growing up. So that's my first one, the 1940 uh, Walt Disney film, Pinocchio.
0: Okay, I will give you my number two. It is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which was probably one of the first movies I ever saw in theaters. It came out in 2000. That was a very big deal when it came out. Uh, the thing that really stuck with me when I saw it and when I like rewatched it when I got it on home video a couple months after I saw it in theaters was just the soundtrack. The soundtrack was like an ever-present that year. My parents got it on CD and we would like play it all the time on road trips and stuff like that. So the, like the songs. It's a great number- soundtrack. It's an incredible soundtrack. And, like, the songs of the movie almost became, like, as important as, like, the movie itself. And it would sort of, like, I'd start to, like, see the scenes when I heard the songs and just, like, how intertwined they became. And that was something that really made me think about uh, just the importance of a soundtrack in a movie and how it can shape the scene with, like, the music that surrounds it and sort of, like, can stick with you more than, more than like, an image or a character can. It's just, like, how the song is used in a movie and, like, the context it provides. So that was a very, very important movie for me when it came out. I must have been like eight or nine when I saw that.
1: I went to a 15th anniversary screening of it very early on when I moved to New York City when I started at NYU where I met you. I actually was at that screening screening also. (laughs) Oh yeah, where it was the Coen brothers, all three leads, George Clooney, John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson. And I think T-Bone Burnett and the cinematographer... Yeah, Roger Roger Deakins was there for sure, yeah. Yeah, I think they were all there. And um, I got a picture, a selfie with one of the Coen brothers, but not both of them. (laughs) A Coen brother. (laughs) Yes, yeah. I can't remember which one, but... um, Oh, it doesn't matter. uh, They're like the same person anyway i know but um yeah i think that's uh that's uh, the, i think it's with the coen brothers their films are so good like even if i don't necessarily think that's one of the maybe their five best it's still uh-huh. a terrific film and oh, yeah. i think that uh you know where the title comes from right uh it is from uh sullivan's travels right right uh have you seen that film yes
0: i have it's a movie within a movie in sullivan's travels right
1: Yes, yes, and it's, they it's borrow great that
0: film. scene of the convicts coming in and watching the movie, and everybody's laughing because that's what convinces Sullivan to make a comedy, right? Because he's like, everybody yes. likes laughing much more than like all this serious, depressing shit. That is right, a very right. underrated movie, Sullivan's Travels. If nobody's seen that, you should go check that out as soon as possible.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, watch all of Preston Surge's films. He had about seven amazing films in five years or so, and then he got kicked to the curb, and he barely made any other movies, which is really sad. But my favorite of his is The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. I think that's one of the funniest. So uh, recommend it. you'll get a bunch of random recommendations, even not just the films we talk about from the list. Sullivan's Travels and The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. Yes, Add yes, those yes. to your list. Okay, what is... Uh, so you want me to do mine now? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this one, okay, I'm going to try not to cry. I don't cry. I'm not going to cry. But the second choice I have, Flying Deuces, which is a Larlan Hardy film from 1939. And when I was younger, I was watching the Babes in Toyland film, uh, the Disney film with Annette Funicello and Keenan Wynn. And my dad said to me that there is an older version of this film with two funny men named Laurel and Hardy. And so there is a film from the 30s called Babes in Toyland, but he didn't have that. But he did have their film, The Flying Deuces. So one of the major influences on my love of cinema are the classic comedies of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Larlan Hardy. W.C. Fields, so on, so on. And it really started my love at an early age of watching older films, black and white films, even silent films. And The Flying Deuces is a really funny one that is in the public domain. It's one that there are a million cheap, you can see it on shoddy YouTube. copies of. Right. There is a good uk blu-ray of it where it's been restored which i have but that film has a really big part of my life because i even showed the scene from it where hardy and laurel and hardy they do a little song and dance and they sing uh, hardy sings shine on harvest moon and i showed that scene at my dad's memorial service and so that's a movie that i think it's really funny and charming but it has like a deep personal connection to me because it reminds me my dad and my dad was the one that gave me my love of film or at least a big big part of it He was the one I don't know that I would be who I am with my taste in film if my dad didn't introduce me to the old comedies when I was a young age you know I watched Disney movies and Nickelodeon and stuff that every kid almost watches but you know my dad introduced me to older films through the classic comedies like Laurel and Hardy so it has a big big place for me that's very nice.
0: So I'm going to go with my number three right now. As mentioned earlier, it is a 40 old virgin. I saw this in theaters. I guess it was 2004. I must have been 12 when it came out. Yeah. Uh, okay. It was the funniest movie I'd, I'd ever seen before, or 15. when yeah. I saw it. And uh, I don't know, just the way they sort of mix the serious themes and the adult situations with some really raunchy humor. It was the first movie I'd ever seen that was sort of dark, but also really, really funny. And the first comedy I saw that was really more than just about jokes, and that sort of just made me expect more from comedies after I saw that one, and sort of expect uh, more than just stuff like you see in Zoolander, as great of a movie as Zoolander is. It doesn't really have too much underneath it. But The Four Old Virgin, I thought, really combined sort of serious themes with really (laughs) stupid jokes in a way I hadn't seen anything do before. And it was obviously a very formative part in my life when i was like 12 or 13 when i saw it for the first time
1: well i mean you're probably we're right around the same age judd apatow i mean i've seen probably you know 25 of his films in theaters that he oh, had yeah. something to do with because he he produced wrote and or directed you know 25 films in like anchorman years. which is also
0: came around the same time as for old virgin that was also i one, know i <laughs> one of the my greatest I, theater experiences of all time Just not stop oh laughing. me too.
1: Well, I think I think the I think the best film that he's ever been connected to in any way is um Super Bad. That's one of my Super Bad is a great movie. Ever. Yeah, I never actually yeah, saw I that s- in theaters. I actually read I the
0: screenplay it. for that before I saw the movie, which is a weird thing I used to do.
1: Oh yeah, I hate that. <laughs> I don't understand how people want to read a screenplay unless they're gonna be in the making of it somehow. That I, was I, like, just I a weird wanna... phase
0: I was in where I was like into reading screenplays. <laughs> That's I,
1: I know. <laughs> I've never read a screenplay in my life. I do for some. Uh, well, my dad wrote a book about film, and I have a screenplay of Patton. That's the only one I own. I have Patton. Oh, Francis Ford uh, Coppola. Uh huh. Yeah, and it's um not just. I mean, I have a. I have a, one of the films later on my list. I have a book of the script, but I have like an actual. Like my dad got a script. Like I think I don't know how he got it, but it's like something you know that. You would just leaf through. It's not like a book at all. He has the big script for Patton, which I've never seen. I need to see Patton.
0: Oh, my God. You've never seen Patton?
1: I know. It's my dog's favorite
0: movie. He's totally entranced by that movie. He loves the soundtrack and the sound of guns. It's got a lot of horses in it that he always keeps interested in.
1: My dog will watch any
0: movie with horses in it. He was just like watch the whole thing. He loves Lawrence of Arabia. He loves Around the World in 80 Days.
1: Well, what is your dog's stance on George C. Scott refusing the Oscar? What is he what is your dog? That... <laughs> He's
0: glad that it is housed at VMI and is where Pat's uh where his formative years I've actually seen the Oscar. My my grandparents took me to VMI when I was like a little kid and that was like one of the first movie memorabilia things I ever saw.
1: Well, okay, I gotta tell you my Oscar story. I was on a plane once and I have a brother who's high functioning autistic, and he. Uh, we were on a plane, and the real Rain Man was on the plane with his father, the guy that was the basis for the Dustin Hoffman, uh, yeah. Barry Levin's film, and they. I think it's the screenwriter that gave him the uh, his Oscar. He gave uh, the Oscar to the man. Um, and my mom went up to him and, and just introduced herself and said that she had a son who was autistic. And, uh, she mentioned that we were from Clemson, South Carolina, and he just started singing the Clemson football chant and like oh, how do yeah. how, you how know what that is? Um, but, uh, he had the Oscar with him they carried around the Oscar It was like all worn and like the gold was falling off because they just like carried it around uh, by hand and I was leaving the plane and I saw the father and the guy go to the counter to make a connection and I just saw the father take the Oscar and put it on the desk and he said to the woman have you ever seen the movie Rain? and I wonder if they start like every interaction They're probably yeah <laughs> He's just, like, carrying on the Oscar, going, like, have you seen the movie Rain Man? Well, look who we... Ha-, you know, but yeah, that's... So I have a picture of me with the real Rain Man and his father holding the Oscar in an airport. Oh, wow. Did you drop a bunch of toothpicks on the floor and say, count them? I know, this is, like, really... I mean, I love my brother, he's really smart, but th- this is, like, really wrong and messed up, but there have been a few times where he's irritated, if I'm irritated with him, I'll, like, pretend to... Th- uh, matchsticks on the floor and go hey how many are there and he'll go that's not funny Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, that's really me but um no but uh i you know i but it was really cool getting to see i mean it's like you know when i was in new york i got to see a bunch of celebrities but to mm-hmm. see a real guy from you know the basis of a film it was just weird seeing him on a plane oh yeah but anyway so is it my is it my turn now i, can't I think remember. it's your
0: turn yeah i think i just went with 40 old virgin
1: Oh, yeah, okay. So um, my next one is the 1931 uh, film Frankenstein,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, starring Boris Karloff. Uh, now, this Never actually the, seen it. It's good. It's very good. The Bride of Frankenstein is the best of the Universal Monster films. I think uh-huh. it's one of the five best um, horror films ever made, and I think it's the best Big sequel ever made. It's the best sequel ever made. Um, But the original Frankenstein, it's – along with the classic comedies, the other type of film that really got me interested into black and white films and older movies were the Universal Monster films. Uh I loved Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, The Wolfman. I was really into that one. Yeah, The Invisible Man. Yeah, I I watched all of them religiously. I mean to the point where I was watching – you know Frankenstein meets the Wolf Man and House of Dracula and all the sequels and even the really bad mummy sequels there's like 5 or 6 mummy films uh-huh. but I've pretty much seen all of them including the creature sequel creature from the black lagoon with a young Clint Eastwood in it oh, wow. but um But anyway, I digress. The first original Frankenstein, uh, 1931, the first one actually is Dracula. That came out earlier in the same year in 31, but Frankenstein had a really big impact on me because it it really scared me when I was a kid. The scene where he throws the little girl in the river after they're picking the petals off the flower, and he doesn't realize what he's doing, and she drowns after he throws her in the river, it really... Traumatized me as a kid because the idea of someone not realizing that they're causing harm, that they're killing someone, the innocence he has, but the harm he could do, that really traumatized me as a kid. So that's the first film that ever scared me. And it's one of only seven or eight films that genuinely scared me the first time I saw it. So, along with The Flying Deuces being the classic comedy beginning of my love of that. The love of the Universal monster films was seeing the original Frankenstein, uh, so that's that's a major one for me.
0: Okay, for my next one, uh, I've sort of the opposite upbringing in movies. As you seem to like a lot of the really old ones as a young kid, I didn't really watch young movies until I like old movies until I was like fourteen or fifteen. The first old movie, like pre nineteen ninety movie, I ever really got into was Doctor Strangelove. I must have seen that when I was like fifteen. And, like, that sort of just opened up the possibility of, like, old movies being good to me. Because pretty much anything in black and white, I just, like, wouldn't watch it for the longest time. But Dr. It's Frank, in my top
1: ten of all time. It's a brilliant movie. And I think it's one of, I don't know if I would ever consider any film to be, but to me that comes closer than any film I've ever seen to being a perfect film.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's probably my favorite Kubrick movie. It's got one of my best my, one of my favorite film performances of anybody is uh, Peter Sellers <laughs> as uh, the three different well, people which one? on that. The best one is, uh, oh man, he's really good as, who is it, Mandrake? It's just like being oh, the yeah. straight man to, uh, uh, I can't, who's it, Jack Ripper is the colonel. Yeah, just being like the straight man to that. I did think he's so Brilliant. perfect in it. Yes, who's incredible <laughs> on it also. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, he
1: talks about, um, you know... The you ever heard of fluoride? <laughs> well, I, I, I think... That, well, I was just looking at this the other day. Did you know that originally they asked John Wayne to play the Slim Pickens character after Peter Sellers was originally going to play four characters? He was going to play... Uh, What's his name, Kong? Kong, yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah, he was going to, P- Sellers was going to play him, but he couldn't get the Texas accent down. And then they asked John Wayne, and I think he probably thought it was un-American or something, and oh, yeah. turned it down. But no one else could do it, as well as Slim Pickens. No,
0: Slim, he is perfect for that.
1: He's absolutely perfect for that. <laughs> and it's, I mean, the way he says, like,
0: nylon Yeah, <laughs> one pack of cigarettes
1: yeah and I mean the, the image of him writing the bomb is just oh, haunting pie. and hilarious yeah it's in the you know when he falls and there, it's just like the whistling of just is just quiet and oh, he's yeah, just yeah. yelling yeah it's 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 really funny and it's brilliant but it's also terrifying
0: yes because it's like such a realistic possibility <laughs> I don't like yeah
1: you know, they, they started the film as a drama it's based on a novel that's a serious.
0: And it's you know, a Henry Fonda movie that I think came out the same year. Right. Fail, Fail safe. safe right?
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, or a few years later, I think. Yeah, and they have, um, yeah, the, they were making the film or they were in the process of, you know, writing the script, and they were thinking of things like what would they be eating in the war room, and they started coming up with kind of humorous ideas in the most serious of a situation. Like who would and they make calls
0: th- out to from the war room and stuff like that? I, it works. Well, and you know, so much better well, as comedy. I've never seen Failsafe, but I can just take from the fact that nobody ever talks about Failsafe that the concept just works better as a comedy than it does as like a serious movie.
1: Well, you know they, were, they actually shot an alternative ending where it was a pie fight, and there's uh, behind-the-scenes stills of the characters with whipped cream all over their, their face. I would love to see that so footage. With the Kennedy
0: assassination is like why they pulled out from that, I've yeah. heard.
1: I know there's some line about sir, the president's been hit. Or yeah, or like, like our that. young
0: president has been struck down in the prime of his youth, or something like that. Uh
1: huh. And and there's even a scene in the uh, in the plane with Slim Pickens' character where he says something about having a good time in Dallas. Yeah. And they cut the they, they loop the line to change it to I think Las Vegas or something, but they they change the. Oh, line. it's like after
0: he's reading everything out, he's like, "A guy could have a great time in Vegas with all that."
1: <laughs> really obvious that he's not saying that the yeah. mouth movement yeah i think yeah. that's a brilliant film and that's one that took me a, a few of you i don't think i appreciated it fully when i first saw it because i had seen things like the pink panther films and the party uh-huh. and the really silly uh which are great but the kind of you know broad comedies of peter sellers and yeah. Uh, I think I, you know, I thought it was funny, but it took me a few viewings. And, and, and Dr. Strangelove is one of the few films, too, besides maybe being perfect. I think it gets better every time I see it. It's just more brilliant and more relevant. And the performances of uh, George C. Scott and he's all the He's really good so, in I know. I love when he's just saying, you know, the the Russian guys in the room and he says, but he could see the big board. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I heard he smacking, really uh, didn't like
0: trying to like be really out there, and he was trying to take it very seriously. So he would like do a bunch of takes where he'd like do it with a straight face, and then like the last one, Cooper could be like, "Now do it like the one I want you to do," and he'd always use that one.
1: I know. and the scene where he's walking and he falls down and just oh, gets back yeah. up, that was yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. If you look in the final, uh, towards the end of the film, where Strangelove is just going you know, nuts with his hand and he's just, you know, it's choking himself, you can see that the Russian ambassador is breaking up. The actor is, you know, he can't control his laughter and he's like smiling and he's, yeah, if you watch that scene again, you can see him breaking up.
0: <laughs> I'll look at that next time.
1: Okay, so it's my, my pick now. Uh-huh. Okay, so my next one is another horror film, the cuz two of my favorite genres are comedy and horror, and after Frankenstein, I never thought that I would ever be able to watch any of the slasher movies or anything that had any violence in it. I was the biggest wimp pussycat. I never th- I would see the cover of a film like Freddy versus Jason and I just would be like I I would never be able to watch that. But I started watching some of the real classic horror films post Psycho that aren't actually that fun, like Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead. That's not even really scary. a horror.
0: It's like a, like a psychological thriller.
1: I know, and so you know a lot of the really classic films that came out, uh, you know, post Psycho, they're not actually that graphic. Uh, but the the first real Psycho horror film I ever saw was the original Halloween from nineteen seventy eight. Still and never I seen it. Oh, it's great! It's and I'm I'm excited for the, I don't know what they're considering a remake or a a reboot. A sequel. Yeah, it's the one where they're ignoring all the other sequels. They're <laughs> yes. going to just do it. Yeah, because the sequels got really ridiculous. They like there's one film that has Paul Rudd from the '90s that get into the Druids and it's just ridiculous and terrible. Oh, but wow. the original John Carpenter film, forty years old from 1978, really holds up. And I think that. It's a film that people remember being much more violent and graphic than it is because you barely see any blood or gore on screen and there's not that high a body count in the film. Uh Uh-huh. And and it's I, I the thing that I, I remember vividly about it is giving myself a talk before the film saying you're an adult you can watch this you can watch Halloween well I wasn't an adult but I was like a teenager I was uh. you know 14 or so and I remember giving myself a pre- uh, you know this I was trying to prepare myself for the film that you know even if it's super disturbing and graphic I would be okay it's just a film it's just a film it's not and real I watched life. it. <laughs> Oh, and I, I was totally okay watching it. I, it, you know, I'm not saying it's not effective, uh-huh. it is, but I wasn't scared. I mean, I could watch it and I had a ball watching it. So it just started me, uh, my descent into watching the most depraved graphic films I've ever made. And I've seen like Martyrs and Cannibal Holocaust now. And, you know, I've seen Solo, I've, I've seen everything. So nothing, I've never as an adult closed my eyes or looked away movie or a television show which I'm very proud of and no documentary n- you know the most graphic violent horror films I've never looked away but Halloween was the one that I had to start with the first post-psycho horror film I saw and I was like I can do this I can do this I can I'm a you know I'm a big boy I can watch this and end up really liking it so it started in my love of um, more modern horror films after my love of the universal monster films
0: okay for my next one, it might be a jump back in time. I think I might have seen this before I saw Dr Strangelove but uh memento Christopher Nolan
1: that was better than any
0: of his films in the
1: last ten years.
0: I have to agree with that unfortunately, but that was probably the first I even
1: like than Dark Knight. I think it's bad well, I think it's better than any of his Batman movies. I'm not saying I don't like them, but memento is one of his like three best films
0: i agree with that i think it's up there with prestige as his two best i really love the prestige i'll defend that i'm yeah i'm the weird guy that thinks the prestige is his best film i love the prestige it's amazing i almost put that on this list but uh memento was probably the first movie i ever saw that had a non-linear narrative i don't know if that's actually true but that's upon remembering i think that's true so as soon as i saw like the, the shell casing jump back into the like the gun my mind was like totally blown and i was like what the fuck just happened like the rest of the movie i was just like oh my god what the hell is going on
1: so yeah well but... do you remember you saw you saw that before pulp fiction
0: yes for sure i definitely saw it before pulp fiction.
1: i didn't watch yeah. pulp fiction until maybe i was like 18 oh yeah oh yeah you had to yeah was that the first tarantino film you saw no, I saw Reservoir Dogs before that, and I think I saw Kill Bill before that. Oh, did you? What about Last Year at Marianne Bad? Did you? Did I didn't dad, watch ever... that
0: until like right before I went to NYU. I was like, this is one everybody's probably seen, so I should probably see this before I'm all around all these film nerds. <laughs> I,
1: I, if I were gonna, if I were gonna put a film like that on my list, th- I mean, it would have been you know in the honorable mentions is last year at marion bad where that's a film that kind of reconfigured my brain like oh "Oh, a movie could do this like it's just so
0: i was totally lost when i watched that for the first time i was like i don't even know what's happening
1: (laughs) i know but yeah it's it's a film that really kind of it just like i it's one of those where i can i just have this image in my head of my brain just like the gears just like the you know the bubbles in my brain just like altering because i didn't realize a film could do that oh yeah it's B, like being so... on drugs when you watch that
0: movie you're like totally disoriented yeah. <laughs> right and Just like the smooth okay. shots of like the hallways and like the close-ups of this like sculptures and stuff like that you're just like this is no context but like i'm totally in on it i'd love to okay, see that so... movie in theaters i think that would be an awesome
1: experience in theaters it should be an imax oh for sure yeah yeah, every movie that I would most want to see in IMAX would never be released in IMAX because nobody would pay to go see <laughs> no, it. Like, no. I, I want to see, like, uh, you know... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll lead into my next film. Uh, I was going to say that this isn't the pick, but Eraserhead would be, like, one of the number one films that I'd want to see in IMAX. Oh, it might, man. you know, kill someone. It, you know, it's so overpowering and loud. The sound already, design but...
0: would give me nightmares forever because I just saw that in, like, theaters, like, regular, and, like, the sound design was so horrifying to me. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I know. Well, my next pick is Blue Velvet, oh, uh, God. David Lynch's 1986 film, which I think is maybe the best film of the 80s. And um, I don't know if it's my favorite Lynch film because there's about three that are tied for first place. But Blue Velvet was a film that really altered how I experienced films, because even though it's not one of his most overtly surreal films or challenging in its narrative, I mean, stuff like Eraserhead... It might be and, like his and, most and,
0: conventional, honestly, except for like the well, story. Well,
1: yeah, besides <laughs> yeah. elephant, Yeah. Uh, but Blue Velvet, the thing that bothered me the first time I saw it, there was this little detail of whether one of the characters that was a policeman was undercover or a dirty cop and it's just a minor detail but for some reason it got under my skin and it just kept bugging me and i was trying to figure it out and it distracted me and i didn't really like the film the first time i saw it and it's a film that i had to re-watch to see how truly brilliant it was and it made me realize the first time i watch a film I need to just lean back and take it – let it wash over me to some degree. You can't – can't be skeptical from
0: the start and be like, what's going on here?
1: I know. You have to – I always say that you should let the film work on its own wavelength and do what it's trying to do. And then afterwards, you can critique it and you can not like it. Yeah. But – you have to go with the flow and you have to be, you know, you have to be open to letting the film work. its. Yeah. Way otherwise magic.
0: you might as well just stop it and like go away. Cause if you're like not into take being on the ride, the movie's taking you on, like you might as well just stop it. It's not worth your time.
1: I know. And so I think it's a brilliant film. It's, like I said probably my favorite film of the 80s but it's one that I didn't really like the first time I saw it and it's also it's funny one of my favorite scenes in the film is where Dennis Hopper's character Frank Booth sings uh, the Roy Orbison song and he's putting oh, yeah. the lipstick on and, and the, the prostitute's dancing on the car behind them. and the first time I saw the film I thought that scene was just pointless and why was this in the movie and it's just overly weird but now it's one of my favorite scenes so it's, it's a good example of film just really changing because of the way I thought about it later afterwards oh that seems mesmerizing though I th- it must have been I think like 18
0: or 19 when I saw that for the first time I loved it the first time I saw it it was for I think it was a uh, film history after 1960 must have been the class that was for and yeah we saw it in like our little screening room at JMU I thought it was incredible when I saw that for the first time
1: well I always tell people that Dennis Hopper is one of the great screen villains of all time oh for and- sure the first scene where he rapes Isabella Rossellini it's so disturbing it's just it's truly one of the most you just you, you still you because you're you know looking at it through the eyes of Kyle McLaughlin's character it's so voyeuristic and disturbing oh, yeah. but the rest of the film he's so funny too oh, Dennis yeah. Hopper is so funny They're you're like oxygen masks he's na-
0: carrying around the whole time <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, and the, Heineken, fuck that shit, Paps Blue Ribbon, you know, doing that. It's And, you know, originally they were going to have him hoofing uh, helium, and he uh-huh. was going to have a squeaky like Mickey Mouse voice, uh-huh. which would have been really trippy and crazy, but um, Dennis Hopper said, I've taken a lot of drugs, this is what it would be. And oh, so yeah. David Lynch, like, gave him, you know, creative freedom to change that so he didn't have a squeaky voice. But, yeah, <laughs> it's so like Blue a Velvet's a major... <laughs>
0: Oh, you know drugs better than I do.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, when he hired Dennis Hopper, uh, he was, you know, I don't know, that, you know, Hopper was kind of in a precarious place in his career. You know, he was a wild guy, but yeah. he was trying to change. This is, like the same year Hoosiers came out, and it's crazy. To He's me that really he was good nominated. at Hoosiers.
0: He's very. Good I know, at but that. it's
1: crazy to me that he was nominated for that and not Blue Velvet. Like, if you're gonna choose one, you got to. Like, well, can that's just nominated? classic Academy Award stuff. They like take the more conventional but... one. I know, but it's but that when you have the when they were casting the film, I think Lynch was a little bit hesitant, and Dennis Hopper said to him, "I am Frank Booth," <laughs> and he said, which is like a really disturbing idea. Oh yeah, know, to, yeah. But uh, I mean, you're talking about the Academy getting it wrong. There's like a whole list of films you could talk about where they nominated someone in a year where they had another film they were much more deserving. Oh, like yeah. I remember they nominated. It's like I hate well. I don't want to give it away, but my next film, there's um, a film, uh, musical, Nine, that is terrible, that has like six Oscar winners in it, and Nine, uh that's not the film I'm choosing, but I'm just saying that Nine uh, had Penelope Cruz nominated, and that same year she was in a really good Pedro Amadovar film, and it's like, why would you nominate this, oh, is that this shitty... No, it was uh, Broken Embraces. She was okay. actually nominated for Voltaire, but the same year that Nine came out, Broken Embraces did, and they nominated her. It's like also like they nominated um, Stanley Tucci for The Lovely Bones, uh, but he was in Julia, Julia and Julia. The, you know, he like they, like oh, why nice. don't nominate the good? film? but anyway, the one the, I thought was really bad for me.
0: that was Leonardo DiCaprio being nominated for Blood Diamond and not The Departed. Yeah. <laughs> like, Blood Diamond is so much worse than The Departed. And his accent is awful in Blood Diamond. It was just like Well, I mean
1: it's it's like some years, you know, you go back to like nineteen thirty nine and there's like 800 films that are worth nominating and it's like technically the rules of the game came out in 39 and they didn't get nominated for best picture I don't think it was nominated for anything $1. but I know it wasn't nominated for best picture best director and it's like you know that that's not going to win or even get nominated when you have you know gone with the win in the Wizard of Oz and Stagecoach oh, yeah. and Mr. Washington but you look back now and almost everyone considers that probably the rules of the game is the best film from 1939 Oh yeah no contest
0: at all that's like obviously yeah. the best looking back. <laughs>
1: That's I might like, say I, I like The Wizard of Oz the best of all. The I Thunder really Man don't films, like but, The Wizard of Oz. I really hate it.
0: Every time I go watch to it. <laughs> I'm like, this a, movie yeah. sucks. And everybody likes no, it's, it.
1: <laughs> it's it's one of those movies that just, you know, everyone except you because you're a bad person. <laughs> it, like, that, like, loves it. And it's, you know, it, but it's, it is truly a great film. It's a masterwork. It's one of, it's like the it's like a shining example of like old hollywood you know movie like it's very you know stagey and it's like you can just painted backgrounds and it's like judy garland's way too old to be playing the character and it's (laughs) there's but everything works though it for some reason everything it it, it adds to it the artifice of it and it's just it's a beautiful film you're wrong you're you're so wrong all right for my next one i'm gonna go with
0: rushmore the wes anderson movie uh Simply because that was the first movie where I really identified with the protagonist. Like, watching movies before then, I'd always been pretty distant from them. and I'd never been like, oh, I'm a whole lot like that that main character. But that main character, was it Max? I can't remember his last name. He's just, like, such a smartass who, like, thinks he knows so much more than everybody else. (laughs) You just want to punch him in the face. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's exactly like me.
1: And Bill Murray is so great in the film.
0: Oh, he's really good in it, too, yeah. That's the classic Bill Murray performance where he just, like, doesn't give a shit. Really
1: good soundtrack
0: need,
1: too. Yeah, I need to rewatch that one. It's one of those I've seen it definitely, but I've only seen it once and it's been years and years and I I mean Wes Anderson's one of those directors like Christopher Nolan to me uh-huh. that are really talented and I, I really like a lot of their films, but I don't think they're one of the ten greatest living directors, like some people might say. I they're neither I'd agree of them, with
0: that. A lot of times I mean, he, like, shows more potential than it, than his movies actually deliver on. I think one of the only ones that really delivered was Grand Budapest Hotel, which is one of my favorite movies. I thought that's, like, the perfect Wes Anderson movie. But a lot of them, there's, like, little glimpses of, like, he's got a whole lot of talent. Like, he uses, like, uh, <laughs> he uses music in really interesting ways, but a whole lot of times it, like, just doesn't come across as, like, a very complete project. So I could see that.
1: Moonrise right. Kingdom I mean, also, I-, I
0: think, is really good.
1: Yeah, I remember one of my cousins' husband said that. Um, not that she has more than one husband, but I mean, one of my cousins, their husband said that Moonrise Kingdom* was like Wes Anderson squared. I thought that was funny. I mean, that's like much, perfect. Yeah. Like some, of, yeah, some of his films are like Wes Anderson with Wes Anderson on top of it you know it's, it's just it's so but but they're good they're good it's just that you have to be in the mood for that oh yeah and I think that I mean I think that he's one of those directors I mean he's one of the few working directors that you can look almost any frame of his film and you know oh that's a Wes Anderson oh film. for sure Tim Burton. You can, yeah you can't argue with that he's definitely yeah. an auteur okay well my next pick is I was kind of referencing it before um is eight and a half uh, Fellini's film uh, from 1963, one of my top ten films of all time. Uh, just never ever watched the awful musical remake of Nine. Yeah, I still There's no reason. Seen it. No, it's it's really bad. But eight and a half. I had seen foreign films before that. I've seen a number of Kurosawa films, and I'm not even sure what I had seen before or after it. But eight and a half was one of those films that just. Blew me away, and it made me realize that even if the film is over 50 years old, and it's from another country, and it it just absolutely enthralled me. And even though in some ways, you know, not not saying it's dated, but you know, you can tell it was made from in the 60s. But there are other aspects of it that seem so vital and they seem like it could have been filmed yesterday it's it's so alive and it's just bursting with imagination and ideas and it's just that opening dream sequence and there's just so many scenes and sequences in the film that are just mesmerizing and that's that's one of the major films that started my love of watching the you know european and you know the foreign films of the you know from the 40s and 50s and 60s that a lot of film people you know it's it's, you know it's a film that a lot of film directors say is one of their favorite films of all time and i just think that movie really opened my mind uh to world cinema
0: yeah i when i first saw that i just did not get it that was like in the phase where like i would just watch all the movies that were like listed on top 100 lists so like these are ones i should see and like eight and a half was always like top 10 and i watched that and i was like i do not get this i didn't like it at all that was one like the more i watched it the more i liked it Still not like my favorite uh, Fellini movie. Probably not even close to my favorite Fellini movie. I would say Amarcord no. is probably my favorite. Have you ever seen that?
1: No, I need to. I've, I've seen La Dolce Vita, and that uh, is I, I like that. that better than Eight and a Half. Also, No Eight and a Half is my favorite foreign film ever. Oh any, really? Any foreign? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I that movie just completely. I just love it. I love it so much. I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. It
0: is really good. It's referenced all the time, like that uh the scene oh, where yeah. he's with all his like concubines and he's like whipping them back. That's a great scene, classic. Still holds up today, even though it's well, obviously one, super misogynistic.
1: Yeah. Well, my, one of my other top ten films is kind of Bob Fosse's version of Eight and a Half, his film All That Jazz. Yes. And that film is in. Well, I don't want to give it away, but one of my other films that I'm going to have on my list later is kind of a Eight and a Half type film, but we'll let you go with your pick next and we'll get to uh, my other eight and a half type film after you
0: starting on or going from yours with the movie that opened you up to world cinema. For me, that was seven samurai. That was like the first foreign movie I ever really liked. Definitely one of the first old movies I ever really liked. And it's weird. Cause that one's like so long and it seems super boring, but it's just like so well captured, like the historical period that it just totally drew me in the first time I saw it. And yeah, I, I think I saw I, The Magnificent Seven before I saw Seven Samurai, so I sort
1: of had that reference point for it. I, 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 I've I never had a desire, except maybe when I was really young, I never have had the desire to do anything in film production to direct films or act or do anything, you know, with filmmaking, and one of the reasons is I, I, I would see a film like Seven Samurai and I just would go, yeah, I can't, you know, there, there's no reason, like just... Like that's such a shining like <laughs> yeah. It's like of, they like, do it of, better
0: than me. I'm not made for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like try to make a film like that. It's just you know it's a you know the you know the uncut version is what like three and a half hours or yeah, something. Yeah, it's super long and it flies by. It's so. Oh, yeah it's it's entertaining and it's beautiful it, it to me it's one of the great examples of long along with the godfather and uh goodfellas of a film being incredibly entertaining and a great work of art oh for sure, it's, yeah. yeah it's it's a master film it's it's a masterful film
0: great to mifune performance one of his better ones in a kurosawa movie
1: I know. And The Magnificent Seven, it's still a really good film, even though it's not, you know, it's it's like when people go, oh, Casino's not Goodfellas. Well, no film hardly is Goodfellas. Yeah. I think that's really fair to say, like, you know, Goodfellas is like one of the 25 best films ever made to me, maybe. Oh, yeah. and to say that, I mean, I love, love Casino also. It's not as good as Goodfellas. But to me to say, oh, well, The Magnificent Seven, is." But still, I think it's a really solid Western. I yeah, really just because like
0: it. it's not as good as the other doesn't mean it has no value whatsoever.
1: Now, the remake with Denzel Washington... I, I never really saw it.
0: I didn't see it. No. <laughs> I,
1: I, I have no desire to see I mean, these days, it's not just a remake or a sequel. It's like a remake of a sequel, of a remake, of a yeah. reimagining of a novel. But, you know, it's like there's a whole rabbit hole of... You know, the, there's not just a film anymore. It's like there's a whole franchise or a series or there's other adaptations. But oh, yeah. I mean, that's been back to the beginning of cinema. I mean, that's not really new, but it's, I think, worse than ever, of everything not being original.
0: Oh, yeah. If I think something's in color and it's in English, there's not a whole much need to remake it.
1: <laughs> I know. Okay, so is, is, my, is uh, mine next, right? Yeah, it's yours. Yeah, I, I can't remember. Okay, so... This uh, is my second favorite film of all time, and my favorite Kubrick, who we were talking about earlier, is 2001: A Space Odyssey. I was and, thinking about putting that on air. Yeah, that was a film uh, when you know we were talking about Blue Velvet, having a film. You know, you got to be in the right mood, or you have to have the right experience, and you have to let the film wash over you. The first time I saw 2001, I watched it at home on DVD on. A pretty small square television. I was the and same. I, yeah. appreciate, <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciated the film, but I didn't particularly like it. I found it kind of slow and hard to grasp. But then I saw it a few years later at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, which most of the time these days only sh- uh, does stage shows and musical acts. But during the summer, they put up a giant screen and show films. And I saw 2001 on a massive screen with really good sound and it was like a religious experience. Oh, I, I walked out of it afterwards and I said, "Oh, now it's my second favorite film of all time. City Lights is still my favorite, but 2001 just after that screening, it just and every time I've seen it in theaters, I saw it recently when they showed it uh in IMAX, I saw uh-huh. it twice in one week. And it just it's it's soul-stir it's soul-stirring and brilliant. And I don't think it's a completely perfect film. Like I said, that Doctor Strange Love, I think that's a problem. I don't think 2001 is necessarily perfect, but it relies
0: there's... on uh, like special effects a little bit more, which seem a little dated at this point, more than like something like Doctor Strange Love, which doesn't rely on special effects like at all. So yeah, it's a little but bit. It tough. still holds up.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I just I seeing it. I remember I. I mean, there's been a number of times that I've had a great experiences. I really saw it uh, at the Fox Theater. I saw it. One of the very first screenings I went to when I moved to New York, I saw it at the Museum of Modern Art. And uh, the director, Bennett Miller, was in my row. Name drop. The guy who directed... uh, Foxcatcher. ...Moneyball and Foxcatcher. And um, I didn't realize it until the intermission I was looking over. I mean, I'm like the only person that would... I couldn't pick him out from... Yeah. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Any other white guy. (laughs) uh, I know. It's not like pick out like David Lynch or tarantino but but, you know no one's gonna know benet miller's but but i um and i saw it twice in imax recently and it was incredible and it's i it's one of the films that i tell people you haven't really seen the film if you watch it at home oh like even if you have really good sound system and high definition and a big big screen you got to watch it on a massive wall in a theater with you know great sound like the it to me, I, i'm very old school in some ways about a film needs to be seen with your fucking telephone off in the dark with an audience that like that audience really does change to... it
0: especially for comedies yeah. comedies are never yeah. as funny when you watch them by yourself as when you see them with an audience
1: <laughs> comedies are funnier horror films are scarier I bet emotional films are more emotional action films are more exciting everything's heightened when you watch it with a group
0: 2001, whenever somebody asks me what the best movie ever made is, I always say 2001. I wouldn't say it's my favorite. It's probably top ten, though.
1: Oh, it yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, I almost started crying the time I saw it at the Museum of Modern Art when because it was really loud for one thing. It was really loud, and they started the you know the opening music, uh-huh. and it was overpowering. I just I almost started crying just from the opening credits. And uh, but yeah, it's 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 a major film for me because I realized that you have to watch the film in the right setting to appreciate certain film. That's right. definitely one of them.
0: I'm going to jump directly off of that because the movie for me that really, like, uh, cemented that for me was Lawrence of Arabia. I saw that when the 50th anniversary print came out. It must have been 2012, I guess. I saw that it was for a British cinema class at James Madison. Uh, He, like, didn't show it in class because he was like, y'all have the opportunity to see this in theaters, actually. So I saw it in a movie theater in Stanton, Virginia, and I got there maybe, like, 20 minutes late. So I like miss the scene where he dies and like his funeral and stuff like that but like right when I walked in was like the scene you see the desert for the first time and I was just like holy shit this looks so much different than when I watched it at home and like the three and a half hours totally flew by and that's a movie if you like watch it at home is super boring and like you can't even watch the whole thing because it like takes such a long time and you can never get through it but that was probably the best movie I've ever seen in a movie theater was Lawrence of Arabia.
1: I know. I just saw an interview recently um, with David Cronenberg and Spike Lee, and they were at, I think, Venice. Uh And Cronenberg was actually saying that he doesn't really care if cinemas die, that it will morph into home video and Uh it will, you know, cinema can't stay the same. And he said that I think it would be fine watching Lawrence of Arabia on my iWatch, uh, my Apple Watch. And he says that the picture – he says the picture quality is uh, probably better, and I can put the headphones right into my ears. And and Spike Lee was saying, no, 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 you have to see Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen. I mean that sounds like someone who
0: hasn't seen Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen, honestly,
1: (laughs) because it really just does not compare. No, I mean to me the top list of you got to see it in the theater on a big screen, 2001, Lawrence of Arabia – Pretty much all of Malick's films, but especially *The Tree of Life* and Ten yes. Red Line*. Um, *Gravity*.
0: *Gravity* uh, is so much different when you see it at home. I saw *Gravity* at yeah. home and I was like, "This movie is awful." But like when I first saw no, it in the theater, it was like, "This is the best movie I've ever seen."
1: <laughs> no, I, I, it was my, it was one of my favorite films that year, and I liked it more than *12 Years a Slave*. So did I. And I thought I it was think, way better. Yeah, I have this thing about I think *Gravity* is an A-level. B movie and 12 Years a Slave is a B level A movie meaning that you know Gravity is basically like a 90 minute sci-fi B movie but it's done so you know on an incredible level that I'd give it an A and then 12 Years a Slave aims to be you know this Oscar prestige picture that's like an A picture but and I really like it but I would give it a B
0: but it's not like close to being Steve McQueen's best movie and no, I think Hunger is
1: his best film. Hunger is incredible. Hunger is his best movie. Yeah, I saw that with my mom. I saw, okay, this is weird. I also saw Shame with my mom in theaters. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, I know. I'm a weird guy. I saw it with my mom in theaters. But um, yeah, but no, I think that. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> no, what we were Lords saying of Gravity in theaters. Oh yeah, Gravity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, I mean that's a film I've never seen at home, and I don't want to. I own the Blu-ray, but I, I have no desire home to see it, and it just does not yeah.
0: work. It just does not work at all.
1: But I don't think it means it doesn't work. It's just that it, it works in a theater. Yeah, it's like, just I don't think not it means... the
0: environment it's meant to be consumed in. So you can just like tell. I know. And 3D, yeah. like more than almost any other movie, besides possibly Avatar, 3D really enhances the experience.
1: Yeah, and the other one I was going to mention um, is I, I did earlier is Eraserhead. That's one that really helps seeing it in a the theater. The yeah. experience of it.
0: That was really unnerving when I saw that for the first time. That was a movie, like, before I saw it, I couldn't even conceive of, like, what the movie would look like. Like, I read the plot of it, and I was like, what would this movie even look like? And when I saw it for the first time, I was like, this is so unlike anything I've ever seen before. It is just so weird.
1: Okay, so I'm going to do my next one, and it's a film I hate. Uh But it's a major – it's Fight Club. I hate that movie. I
0: loved it when I first saw it. It is – the more I see it, the less I like it. Same with Pulp Fiction, actually, is like that. The more I see those movies, the less I like them.
1: Okay, I have to say, I've never read the novel, and I've only seen the film once. The novel I... makes me very angry. <laughs> well, David Fincher, I think, is one of the great directors of his generation. I kind of, in my mind, put together uh, Christopher Nolan, mm-hmm. Darren Aronofsky, David O. Russell, David Fincher, Guillermo del Toro, Quentin Tarantino. There's a group of, like... I put Richard s- Linklater a- in there. Yeah, well, and I'm not. I'm not saying that they're all, you know, of the same quality, but there's like a group of seven or eight directors that are kind of in my mind as a kind of a, a, a troop. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they started like in the roughly around like the mid '90s. Um, but Fight Club is a movie that. I didn't just dislike it. I was, like, repelled by it. I, I, I think the film's – and I love violent movies, uh-huh. but it's just a film – I felt dirty. I felt just – it just repelled me, and I just I, – I think the film is a really ugly film, and I really genuinely hate it. But at the same time – I kind of admire the film because I do think it's incredibly well directed and acted and I do think there's a lot of craft to the film and I always point to that as a film that even though I hate it I have more respect for it because it what if it's what it's trying to do uh-huh. than some just completely generic churned out you know studio movie like to me i point to something like Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. It's not a terrible film, it's just it's so middle of the road that it's almost infuriating. It's just <laughs> so bland. That. And like even though i like Sherlock Holmes more than Fight Club I would rather see Fight Club again than Sherlock Holmes. I would rather try to reevaluate and see if I had a, cha- a different opinion on Fight Club. It's a movie that I wrestle with and I had a really strong reaction to. But I would rather have a really strong reaction to a film and hate it than watch something That's just, that just yeah, Yeah. I would rather be angry with a challenging film than be bored by a generic middle-of-the-road film that's like a bunch of other movies and Fight Club is very original
0: it's yeah it's certainly very original the people of our age are just crazy about Fight Club that and Pulp Fiction are like two movies they just go crazy
1: about well I, no, I think Pulp Fiction is like one of the five best films in the I hate Pulp by... Fiction so much no it's 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 like by a massive margin it's the best thing Tarantino's ever done I like and I think... Glorious Bastards way more i th- i love I, I like a lot of his movies and he's another one that i really like uh you know great a number of his films but he's not in my top 10 living directors i would nolan in and Anderson yeah i mean I, he's one of the ones i i'm most excited for his new film always I'm oh i'm super very excited, excited for the for, next one but i know
0: hateful eight i thought but, was really bad i really didn't like hateful yeah late
1: that's yeah. That was the only one that I really didn't like. It just all the things that I defend Tarantino for. Usually he was at, at his worst in that film. Oh yes. it's, yeah. way it's like dialogue that totally didn't need to be masturbatory. In it. Yeah, yeah. it totally and it's, is. And, and like Fight Club, it's a movie that I find it really pernicious and ugly. And it's just <sighs> the violence is just childish. Oh yeah. I, I I always admire that he doesn't use CGI and he uses practical effects. And I like the you know, heads being blown off and uh-huh. the blood effects but I find the violence really ugly and it just feels like a little annoying kid just going look at all the heads exploding look oh, at yeah. the shooting the woman and you know and I, I usually am the guy that defends Tarantino as not just being a schlockmeister and just violence for the sake of violence but Hateful Eight was just I thought it was overlong, and it was thread you know it was a thin film there's no reason to shoot it in 70mm because five percent of it takes place in one lo- indoor location
0: oh yeah and the way you so, talk yeah, I... about it like i remember him talking about the script he's like if i had, like release this in a like a theater it would kill any way i release this movie it would kill but i just want to like want to do it in a movie theater with 70 millimeter because i think that's the best way to do it and i was like you are so into yourself and your writing that you just like think anything, anything you put down on paper is the best thing ever written like get it, get over yourself
1: I, well, I, there's a documentary um, about 15 years ago that Lars von Trier did called "The Five Obstructions," uh-huh. and he gets a filmmaker who made a short, and he gets him to remake it a number of times with different obstructions. Like there can only be half a second for every shot, or uh-huh. he has to be animated. He has, and I have. Um, I would love to have Tarantino make a film with the obstructions that it has to be. 90 minutes or less, have no <laughs> violence, and not reference any other films. I think it would actually be, be probably his best movie <laughs> if he made that. It's like, it's like as much as I like a lot of Django Unchained, I think that that and Hateful Eight are two of his weaker films. I mean, I, I really do like a lot of Django, but it's too long. It's it, definitely it too seems, long. I know, and he needs to, I mean, I want him to make you know a 90-minute you know, he he's he's trying to make every film a three-hour spaghetti western. Uh-huh. You know, he's trying to make the good, the bad, and the ugly every time, or pretty some much. like variation on it. And I wish you would just go and make some and like another red
0: dogs, like just do something like that.
1: Yeah, it's like ninety something minutes, isn't yeah, it? hundred minutes. It's like
0: yeah, it's very contained. It doesn't try to do too much. It just is what it is, and it's like pretty perfect in and, that way.
1: Yeah, and I i would eat my shoe if when he dies he's made 10 films oh less. i
0: know that whole thing is just self mythologizing it's such bullshit
1: i know it's it's there's you know him like oh death proof has to be my worst film and i'm like no well, hate flakes your worst film uh, I, yeah <laughs> so you don't I get absolutely. to decide that <laughs> yeah i mean i Tarantino's a director i really Admire, but I also. Oh, I I remember someone said one time he's probably the number one person ever who never needs to get on Twitter.
0: Oh yeah, he's up there. Kanye's probably up there too. Unfortunately. Yeah, but
1: he's on. Yeah, he's on Twitter though. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but if people, I wish he would stop. I mean, he would just like you know he know he would tweet the N word within like the first five hundred tweets, or he would like be arguing with people, or yeah. I mean, I kind of would like to see it. And then Samuel
0: Jackson would have to come out and defend him.
1: I know. Spike Lee's on Twitter, so they would get in Twitter feuds. Oh, yeah. But anyway, what's your next one? Uh, one
0: Spike thing I have Pulp to Fiction. say about Pulp Fiction is that Bruce Willis' girlfriend, I find the most irritating character in the history of cinema. I just wish oh, he wasn't just... in that movie at all. A little pot I... belly. <laughs> it's like, shut up.
1: Okay. <laughs> right, but but I mean, I'll move on from that. But do you, do you, but do you still like genuinely hate the film now, or do you just I just like The,
0: the more Spike? I see it, I'm just like, there's... I this it has no substance to it it's all just style it's all just a whole lot of flash and it's
1: I like... oh, see i think it's i think it's the opposite i think that more and more some of his recent films that there's not a lot of substance in that pulp fiction has the like it's a spiritual film in a way that yeah. you know the quoting the bible i yeah, think I it's yeah i know but i think it's pretty
0: of... try hard about that kind of stuff i don't know <laughs> we could save this for a pulp fiction podcast We could probably do a whole thing about that uh, so i'll just move on to my next one uh, it is the best of youth which is definitely the longest movie I ever saw. When I saw it, it probably still is the longest movie I've ever seen. It's about six hours. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's no, uh... But
1: I've seen I've seen Frederick Wiseman's six-hour documentary *Near Death*. I saw that in theaters. That's the long. <laughs> well, okay. that's the longest theater experience I've ever had.
0: I did not see *Best of Youth* in the theaters. I saw it in one sitting, though. But that was the first okay. movie I ever saw that showed me that, like, a movie can have the same sort of scale as, like, a novel can in terms of spanning generations and, like, telling a story about, like, a nation and stuff like that. And I just really—I mean, it's parts of it are really boring. It probably is too long, but just, like, the way that it—it's about, like, Italy from the 60s until, like, the 2000s, and it just sort of takes you through this family about, like, uh, different political movements in Italy and, like, you know, natural disasters and stuff like that. It, like, tells the story of Italy through this family— and I, that's, like, something that's usually saved for, like, a novel, like, you know, like, Tale of Two Cities or something like that. So to see someone, like, do that in a movie I thought was really incredible. It's by the director of Amelie, right? No, it's not. That guy did uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet. I don't know who actually directed it's Best of Youth. I'm going to look that up right now. No, no I don't you're think wrong so. the, Okay, I if think it you're is wrong. Jean-Pierre Jeunet, then I'll... No, you're thinking, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna... You're thinking I think, of uh, A Very Long Engagement.
1: Maybe oh, okay well who did direct the best of youth marco tulio giordana <laughs> okay well the very long engagement is that a very long film i <laughs> it's know like that two and a half hours really long. okay anyway okay so you so i should do my next one
0: yeah you should check out this movie it's really good it's one i bet nobody like i'm probably like one of very few people who've seen it the way i saw it is like you know how imdb used to do like recommend this like if you go on like uh like, whatever title, you, like, scroll to the bottom, it'd be, like, movies like this.
1: Yeah, sometimes they're really off, though.
0: Oh, I know, but this would just pop up for, like, almost every movie I liked would be, like, "You, I recommend The Best of Youth, and I was like, maybe I should check this out. So it was, like, sort of well, random how I went about seeing it.
1: Well, I mean, going along with what you're saying of watching it in one sitting, I'm very firm, along with my wanting to see a film in the best possible conditions, that every film should be watched in sitting. Not interrupt it. I mean, if you have to go to the bathroom, okay. But not, you know, watching a film and then finishing it the other night, even if it's six hours long. You, you watch a film in one sitting, I unless it's so. like a, a mini series or something. If it's yeah. a theatrical film, you watch it in one sitting. That's yeah. how I. That's how I feel. Yeah, and it is
0: funny how someone will be willing to watch like six episodes of like a TV show, but they won't be willing to watch a six-hour movie. I think it's weird how people do that.
1: Well, I, I remember Steven Soderbergh went out. You know, he kind of went on his "quote unquote" retirement, where he ended up directing <laughs> yeah. Twenty Hours of Television. You know, which was not really true, but uh-huh. but he did his film Che about Che Guevara, the biopic that was five Great hours movie. long.
0: Yeah.
1: Huh. Great movie. At least the first like part's it? really good. Yeah. No, I like. It. Yeah, I. I saw Second it part not as good York. as the first part. I know, but the I saw it in theaters when I was visiting New York, and I remember in the Criterion Collection uh, Blu-ray, the special features he was talking about, he's not even sure that it was worth it to make the movie, because to ask someone to watch a five-hour film these days is like asking someone to take a day out of their life.
0: But that's Just not even like true, because people watch Stranger Things in like one day.
1: I know, but they won't watch a five-hour film, though. I that's know it's just thing. weird how it's
0: like like that, though, and have people have this sort of barrier to watching, if it's like.
1: I, I think don't the know. thing is, you can watch forty-five or you know, thirty or forty-five or an hour long, but they won't watch something that's three hours long. Like they can, yeah. they can stop at forty-five-minute you know intervals. And take a break the, and know, text somebody or something like I know. that. I know. Well, the attention span thing too. It's that people. You know they'll they'll keep watching a series, but with a film as you know you you know you know the film's going to end and it's three hours. Yeah. All right. Well, my my next pick is a film that it's my favorite of the century. It's Synecdoche, New York. Still never seen it. Yeah. It's it's a film that I saw a few months after my dad died in two thousand eight, and it's it's one of you know maybe the number one film I've ever seen that really has a personal attachment I have a personal attachment to it and it's almost uh, it's like raw the film to me it, it's it's hard almost to watch it at times because it, it I connect to it so emotionally and I think the film is really funny and uh, and is smart and clever but it's also emotionally harrowing and there's just so much depressing stuff in the film and it's a film that I don't even know why exactly, but I see a lot of my father in it, and it makes me think about life and death and the passage of time. And it's a film that really uh, means a lot to me. And I saw it twice in theaters, and I haven't seen it, I don't think, in a few, for a few years. It's one that really I keep thinking about all the time, and it makes me think about the big questions in life. And it's a film that has a lot of personal um, attached. I have a lot. I have a lot of personal feelings about it. So that's that's a film that you know. I I understand it's not everyone's cup of tea. It's it's funny that there are critics that think it's the best film of that decade. And I've there's heard other a lot ones that, say that actually. Roger Ebert, it's his favorite film of that decade, and and then there's well Rex Reed is an idiot. He said that it's not the worst film ever made. It just seems like it. <laughs> that's
0: just like a clickbaity
1: I'm, kind of thing to say. I know but also like even Mark Maron, who says that he thinks Charlie Kaufman is a genius he uh-huh. said that when he first saw Synecdoche in New York he said 8 hours into it I was just like what is going on like he was just lost you know it, it, it you know it's it's actually just over 2 hours but it uh-huh. is it just feels it, like it's forever I mean, I mean, it is a tough sit in some ways, because it's interesting that it started out as a horror film. Uh-huh. Uh, Charlie Kaufman was uh, supposed to do a horror film, and he thought of, uh, what are the things that scare me in life? And he was thinking of cancer, aging faster than you realize, your children growing up you know, more, uh, faster than you realize, and all these scary things that are very realistic and not like zombies and boogie-woogie stuff. But so it transformed into him doing Synecdoche in new york which isn't a horror film but it still has a lot of really heavy themes so that's a film that really uh like i said i haven't seen it in a few years because it's it's almost hard for me to watch because it's it has so much emotional baggage with it but i think it is uh the best film of it, it, i mean i said, i think it's the best film of the previous decade and i would say probably of this century so far so it's way up there as one of my favorite films I would put do you have any films that do you have any films that like actually have like a real deep personal attachment not just I really like it or I liked it as a kid, but ones that are like on an emotional level like you can relate to it in some way for, you know a personal story or
0: I mean Rushmore might be like the closest to that for me honestly uh, yeah, I'm usually very detached when I watch movies and I like watch them not really considering myself as like
1: I don't know it's like the detached observer. me too. So. Yeah, you know, I am too. I, I don't heart, I don't usually think of you know. I, I I'm not someone like I never cry during films. Yeah, I hardly ever, ever do. Every time, well, "City Lights" gets me almost every time, or at least I my lip trembles. The ending to me is the greatest ending of all time, and it's the greatest image and scene in film uh-huh. history. Uh, and there's been other times that uh, that things have got. I mean, I thought the ending of Black Klansman recently. I didn't cry, but I thought that was, it was very offensive. overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. One that definitely down. does that
0: for me is uh, Loving. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah,
1: yeah, I was just thinking that the ending is the thing that gets me, is that you know how a lot of films that are based on true stories, they'll end with a title card of, like, and yeah. then this happened, and the fact that they went through all that, and then he go, and then he was hit by a drunk driver, and you yeah. see them, you know, it's just it's heartbreaking. Yeah,
0: and also yeah. that movie took place, like, less than 20 miles from, like, where our house is, so it, like, it's, you know story about Virginia and about Virginians and I don't know I anything that's like about Virginia I'm just like all into it so like when that came out and that's something I'd like learned about like that was something we learned about was loving versus state of Virginia which I don't think a lot of Americans really knew about so when that came out I was like this is something that's like made for me so that's probably one.
1: well, the one of the other, only other films that well in a theater that I cried was Fifty Fifty. The Seth Rogen, yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt cancer comedy drama, <laughs> yeah, which is uh, actually pretty good. No, no, I think it is a good film, but I you know, my dad was had cancer and seeing that and it was the scene where uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt is going into surgery and Angelica Houston plays his mother and they were wheeling him off and I don't know why at that moment you know, the whole film's about cancer, but I was just like and my lips started trembling and that I just totally lost it. But yeah, I don't hardly ever cry during films, even ones that are You know, I sometimes will sit there and go, oh, this is very moving, but I'm not actually crying. (laughs) That's exactly how I
0: am. Like, if I were to cry, this is something I would cry over.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, this is uh,
0: the last one, actually, I believe, if I haven't totally miscounted. And
1: then uh, I'll have my last one, because you went first, first. Yes. First, first, first. So,
0: my number 10 is The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Uh, Great film. I have a great theater
1: theater story about that. You go ahead. (laughs)
0: Okay. That was the first movie I ever saw that was like the first person perspective for most of the movie. And so, I don't know, just the way that was shot, it was so unlike anything I'd ever seen before that it just totally captured my imagination. I thought it was incredible. And uh, I saw that in theaters, I think, at like this art theater that was near my house. I'm pretty sure I saw it there. And that was sort of when I was getting into like foreign movies and serious movies and stuff like that. So that came at a nice moment for me to see it for the first time. And, yeah, that was one of the first foreign movies that I, like, really got super into.
1: Well, the, At least contemporary foreign
0: movie, not, like, Seven Samurai, which right. came out 50 years ago.
1: Right. Well, I saw it in theaters. I think it was in Atlanta. And I was sitting there watching it, and the guy in front of me started having a seizure in his seat. He started just twitching, and he started you know just spazzing out and the guy that he you know his friend started you know like well what's wrong what's wrong and the audience started you know people that were sitting in that row went up to him and they were trying to help him and I didn't know what to do like I didn't know that I could help so I just started like leaning my head up trying to re- keep reading the subtitles <laughs> and watching the movie. you asshole. I was like I know. I was like, I can't do anything. like, You know, there's like five people right you know, around him helping him. I I'm just going like to overcrowd him. Watching. Probably
0: make it worse. I know.
1: And then like a minute later, he just like was fine. And he said, hey, w- w- what's going on? And he's like, his friend said, dude, you just had like a seizure. And he's like, I did. And they left and walked out of the theater. And then I just kept watching the movie. But, it was just, it was just a random experience, and it was kind of interesting because it was that film. Because you know, the and the dude Caroline, like has and...
0: a seizure in the movie, and like that's when he goes know. to home. <laughs> That's yeah,
1: weird. Yeah, I know. So I, 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 I feel kind of that shows you how dedicated I am. There was like a guy having a seizure in front of me, and I'm yeah, like, power my – my Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, I mean, I couldn't really do anything. There was like five people right around him that were helping him. It's like, you know, I might as well keep watching the movie. I feel like in sometimes in those
0: situations, you like hinder more than you actually help, especially if you have no
1: expertise about it. I know. I was like, I wasn't going to like pull out a piece of like wood to put between his teeth. (laughs) You you go, I'm a doctor. (laughs) I know. Uh, But um, so, okay, my last pick, you you will never guess in a hundred years that this will be my pick. Uh, It's One Direction, This Is Us the 3D One Direction okay. concert film. Okay, I saw it in theaters when I was the film critic for the Daily Gamecock, the newspaper for uh, the University of South Carolina. I was the main film critic. And I, when I became the main film critic, I went to see movies that I didn't really want to see. Uh-huh. I saw uh, Tyler Perry movies, and I saw, um, you know, films that if I were just watching them on my own, I wouldn't watch so i thought to be fair and balanced i would go see the one direction concert film is directed by morgan spurlock the guy who directed supersize me is he really and one of the few celebrities the i saw in manhattan was morgan spurlock oh yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah well the, the the thing about the movie is that it's not that bad yeah you know i have no interest whatsoever in one direction they're just a you know co- you know there's, it's just a boy band, like a uh, hundred other boy bands. There, I can't tell them apart. I can't name any of their songs. One of them songs, is, and a, it... is a Muslim. <laughs> you can pick him out. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> at least Malik. one of them has to be gay, probably. One of them has to be gay, at least. Probably the Irish guy. Right. Well, I, I don't know why this is so stupid, but there's something that bothers me. The one of the oldest one in the group was born on uh, December twenty fourth, nineteen ninety one, and I'm born on Christmas Day in ninety one. I hate that one of them's one day older than me because, like, I just there's something about like I want them to be younger than me from a like, totally just, different like, generation. <laughs> I know it's like the, the fact that the, one of them's actually older than me, but the film, you know, it's not great. It's a Big, You know, colorful, puffy, you know, puff piece for them. That's just like, it's basically a promotion for them. But it was slickly. It was, it's slick. It's, you know, it it goes, you know, it, it I didn't hate it. Oh. And I was really surprised. And it made me realize that just because of film is not my you know, cup of tea or it's about a subject matter I don't care about it doesn't mean it's going to be a terrible film and you got to be open-minded and so I gave the film a reasonably positive review and like for example That same year, I was super excited for the Evil Dead remake because they were, you know, the original filmmakers were producing it and they were going to use practical effects and end up hating the movie. Uh And the fact that I liked the One Direction concert film more than the Evil Dead remake was like, I would have never thought that in a million years that I would have thought before I saw both of them. Teaches you for being a movie snob. (laughs) I know. So like One Direction, I'm not defending it as being a great work cinema, but... It made me realize that you got to be open-minded and that you know a film is what it is you know that film that that's like a dictionary definition of you know I've said with some films it is what it is mm-hmm. you know the One Direction 3D concert film it is what it is yeah it's but not Citizen Kane <laughs> yeah and it's a better film you know it's Martin Scorsese shows up in it oh really yeah, he goes back. He took his daughter to one of their concerts, and he shows up uh, and he shakes the hand. And he go, you know, he he he's obsessed with music, and he was like, "You did the last yeah, yeah, waltz,
0: like me. the best con- concert movie ever." I made. Know. <laughs> Yeah,
1: it's like the best. I know, thought about like, putting
0: that on here, honestly.
1: Yeah, I saw that for a documentary class. Uh, we had to watch films outside of class, and I uh, watched that. It's it, yo, it's great. I love
0: the last Waltz. Yeah, I mean,
1: he, I mean, the last waltz and stop making sense are like stop the best making concert. Sense is incredible. I I hated that I saw it for the first time at MoMA, and like 25 minutes of the movie, the sound was messed up. Oh
0: wow! It was like
1: it's like this like it would be, it, was, it sounded like it was underwater. It would be like okay, and then it would just like it's like one of it, it's like the speakers got unplugged, and it was underwater for like oh. 25 minutes. It was infuriating because it's such a toe tapping, like rousing. Oh yeah, You're like, totally miss Psycho Killer. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like Psycho. You know yeah it's, <laughs> it was it was like yeah it, it was disappointing but I uh you know it's a good film to see with a packed audience for sure
0: I bet I was really late to that I didn't see that until a couple years ago just because I weird. saw
1: I saw Jonathan Demme in person before he passed away. I saw a screening of Caged Heat, his very first film. He did it for Roger Corman. I saw it at the Nighthawk in Brooklyn, and uh, he uh, talked afterwards. I'm I'm very proud of the fact that I saw people that have died. I saw Jerry Lewis at the Museum of Modern Art. I saw the director of Rocky and the Karate Kid, um, John... Albertson I think but uh, he, I saw him at a screening of The Karate Kid I saw Herschel Gordon Lewis I saw the what, really big one besides Jerry Lewis is that I saw Don Rickles perform stand-up about six months before he died in oh, New wow. Jersey so that was really cool so anyway I of course I gotta end it with talking about everyone that's died but you know that's a good place to end I guess with death but you know I don't wish ill of any of the One Direction uh, you know I don't I, you know but but I still can't I still can't tell any of them apart. like when you watch the film they're just like Harry Styles group. you
0: don't know Harry Styles he was in Dunkirk well, he's, in,
1: he's in Dunkirk he's um, well he's the one that kind I mean this is like blasphemy to say but he kind of has this like Mick Jagger swagger to him like I I'm think he's he,
0: pretty good I like the album he put out Sign of the Times I think that's a pretty good song like I'm not a hater of Harry Styles I kind of like Harry Styles
1: he's good in dunkirk i mean well you can't tell any of the characters apart in dunkirk yeah he is has a like, very english face he really works for that role <laughs> he i know just looks like know. an english guy it's like christopher N- i'm glad that even though you know he's like you know harry styles is like attractive but he does have that like you could see him like working in the coal mines in a 50s period yeah. piece literally you know? like any it's...
0: english situation harry styles could be in it just because he like just looks like an english guy
1: yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Nolan is uh, cast music people in some of his films. You know, David Bowie's in The Prestige. Yes,
0: very good in The Prestige.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, so those are 10 films that influenced us, our world of cinema. Were there any, do you just want to really quick ramble off that you thought of putting on the list? Not going into long discussion of it, but just something like a sentence or two about any other ones you were almost. Put yeah, on the I list? can just
0: ramble off some that I was thinking about. High Fidelity, I was thinking of putting on there
1: never seen that John Cusack
0: movie it's because it's like very influenced based on a Nick Hornsby novel right exactly yeah just very much influenced my music taste uh let's see Anchorman I thought about putting on there because like that was the funniest movie I'd ever seen
1: Forrest Gump I still think it's Will Ferrell's best film
0: I think it is too Forrest Gump I almost put on there because that was I don't know do you like that film I love Forrest Gump and I thought I've probably seen that more than I've seen any other movie I saw that for the first time when I was maybe like four or five and that was probably, maybe more than the Thin Red Line or Braveheart, that was like my baseline of what a good movie is, was Forrest Comp? <laughs> that was sort of like my original good movie.
1: I still can't believe that you got anything out of the Thin Red Line at eight years old. Like I it, I mean, seeing it for the first time when I was like 24, I'm still like scratching my head kind of. I mean, I think it's,
0: I think it's sort of one of those things where like as
1: a kid, you're sort of more
0: open to like. I don't know, the kind of, like...
1: Impressionistic, yeah. Yeah, it's
0: just like, oh, this makes sense to me. I'm a child. I don't, don't, like, know about narrative or anything like that. This is just a movie with very beautiful shots and some really cool action in it. I definitely watched it more as, like, a war movie than, like, a poetic masterpiece. Because, like, that was when I was really into war movies. Like, I'd seen, like, uh, Patton and, like, Braveheart and, like, The Patriot and stuff like that.
1: (laughs) Well, when... One of the films I was going to mention, I didn't put it on the list because I said Blue Velvet, but definitely one of the big films for me is uh, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk with Me, because that's the number one film I've ever seen that I had the biggest change of opinion on. I saw it after I'd watched the original TV series, which I adored. I just ate it up, and I just, you know, I was, a, you know, going through David Lynch's work, and then I saw the film right afterwards, and I didn't just hate the film. I was angry with it i was angry at lynch for what he did he took this amazing tv series that ended on a cliffhanger and he made this prequel film that doesn't answer any questions and it's just weird and it's doesn't tonally match the tv series it's much darker and they've always like, did that no, too isn't yeah but i rewatched it a few years later because with lynch Almost any of his films, you got to watch, you got to give it more than one shot. And I watched it having been separated from the series for a few years. And I ended up thinking the film was incredible. I liked it much better. And I think the opening sh- one of the opening shots of the film is um, a television set being smashed huh. and I think that he's telling the audience that this is not the TV series this is something different and definitely with Twin Peaks the return he you know completely blew apart what the idea of Twin Peaks was and that even was the an whole medium of television TV telev- show yeah Yeah oh well I don't need to ramble about Twin Peaks being the that greatest be thing that's ever been it's own episode in the medium of television <laughs> I know, but definitely the Twin Peaks And then I saw it a third time just a few days before the new series premiered. I saw it in theaters in 35mm, and I went from hating the film to thinking it was really good to thinking it's actually one of Lynch's greatest achievements, and it's one of the best uh, films based on a TV series, I think. And so that's definitely the number one film I had the biggest change of opinion on.
0: So that's it for me and Jonathan for today. Uh, Come back next week and we will have a brand new episode for you. Uh, Thank you for listening.